Hello, and welcome to Mr. Benson's Extraordinarium. Extraordinary tales from around the globe and throughout history. I'm Dan Benson. When I was a youngster, some of the other kids at school used to roam around the golf course and pick up lost balls. If they were in reasonably good condition, they would sell them back to the golfers for pocket money, at a cheaper price than the new ones, of course. But like many things, in the early 1990s, this would give way to technological advancement. Wade Quattlebaum, a former used car salesman from South Carolina, invented a device, the purpose of which was to find lost golf balls. It was a handheld device with an old-fashioned telescopic aerial attached to a horizontal pivot point so it could move freely and find the direction of golf balls, or more specifically, the materials the golf balls were made from. A card reader was attached to the device, which could be clipped to the user's belt, into which you fed a plastic card with the signature of the item you were seeking. But the true brilliance of his invention, I think, was the power source. The static electricity produced by the person using the device was all that was required to power it. Specifically, the act of breathing was supposedly sufficient to run it. An absolutely extraordinary invention. Soon, the machine, named the Quadro Tracker, sometimes also known as the Positive Molecular Locator, was adapted to find various types of metals, drugs, explosive devices, and basically anything you want, as long as you inserted the correct signature card. The Quadro Corporation was formed and would begin selling a variety of different models of the Quadro Tracker, and they sold very well. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be sceptical that such a device could possibly work. If not immediately, then perhaps the fact that we don't hear any more about the Quadro Tracker all these years later might suggest there was a fault in the device. And you'd be right. The Quadro Tracker had no electronic components whatsoever. Not even a circuit board to give the appearance of containing electronics. There were some wires, but they weren't attached to anything. It was a completely hollow plastic handle. What convinced people that it worked was that the aerial was so loosely attached it would swivel and point from the slightest movement by the operator. The Quadro Tracker was exposed by FBI agent Ron Kelly, who had heard of the device and immediately became suspicious. He obtained a Quadro Tracker and had it x-rayed in 1995. The FBI laboratory examined the device and the game was up. But what is extraordinary is that Agent Kelly heard of the device from a friend on the Jefferson Parish Narcotics Task Force in Louisiana. They had been supplied with a Quadro Tracker to find illicit drugs. They weren't the only ones. The Quadro Tracker was being used by some US schools to detect students carrying drugs and weapons. It was also used by airports and police departments to look for everything from teenagers carrying a bag of weed to dead bodies, without anybody having enough curiosity to take one apart and see how it worked. And if that sounds naive to you, then claims about one of the more advanced models will probably drop your jaw. 
Supposedly, you could insert a photograph of the item or person you were looking for into the card reader, and the Quadro Tracker, like Captain Jack Sparrow's Enchanted Compass, would point to whatever the person holding it desired. Despite the ridiculousness of this claim, people continued to suspend disbelief and purchase units, sometimes at prices up to $8,000 US. Without going into too much detail, Wade Quattlebaum and the Quadro Corporation were taken to court and while they were acquitted, the Quadro Tracker had been exposed and consigned to the history books. Except it wasn't. You may find this hard to believe, but the Quadro Corporation's secretary moved operations to the UK, gave it a new name, and began selling them over there. One of the devices was bought by one Jim McCormick for the princely sum of £10,000. Now, Jim soon figured out he'd been scammed and decided that this was probably, in the words of Arthur Daly, a nice little earner. So he copied the device and began selling them as the ADE, or Advanced Detection Equipment, throughout the 2000s, as, of all things, a bomb detector. His ADE651 model was his hands-down bestseller, sold to government agencies in 20 countries around the world. One of those governments was the Iraqi government, who distributed the ADE651 to its army and police service to detect explosives at a time when bomb detection was quite critical in Iraq, spending approximately £53 million on what basically amounts to a motorbike throttle with a transistor radio aerial attached to it. Jim McCormick would find himself convicted of fraud in 2013 and sentenced to 10 years. But there were others copying and selling the device on an international scale too, including one that supposedly would be able to find the whereabouts of missing girl Madeleine McCann. But I don't have time to go into all of them. I'm sure you get the thrust of it. It wasn't the first time nor the last that people and governments have spent enormous sums of money on something that doesn't do what it's supposed to do, and I'm not even sure what I find extraordinary about all this. That it happened in the first place or that it was immediately copied and hot on the heels of the first scandal, the exact same con was able to be repeated. In any case, it reminds me of an old saying of my mother's. Some people just have more dollars than cents. On the morning of November 23, 1944, an RAF anti-aircraft unit stationed in Belgium observed an aircraft flying towards their position. It was quickly identified as a B-17 Flying Fortress, a bomber weighing 35,000 pounds or 15,876 kilos give or take, which was the primary workhorse of the United States Air Force. Having ascertained that the plane was an Allied aircraft and spotters noting that it was losing altitude and had the landing gear down, preparations were made for a landing. Very likely an emergency landing as nothing had been scheduled. So they prepared for a worst case scenario and they had assumed correctly. The plane didn't seem damaged but it did have an engine out and on approach narrowly missed colliding with some of the unit's guns. 
The aircraft landed in a nearby field and following emergency protocols, the RAF units, medics and people with firefighting equipment raced to the scene. But there was something unusual about the situation. Three of the plane's four engines were still running and continued to rumble with the propellers spinning and nobody seemed to be throttling down or shutting them off. One would also expect the crew to start clambering out, but as time passed, there was no activity. This would be curious at the best of times, but in a time of conflict, also highly suspicious. Could it have been a plane that was captured by the enemy? After a period of around 20 minutes had elapsed, Major John V. Crisp made the decision to approach the plane thinking that the most likely set of circumstances was that the pilot had just managed to land the plane as a final act and that there were no survivors, or possibly that those who did were in such bad shape they were unable to get out under their own steam. American Air Force bombers, indeed any aircraft, were a complete mystery to a man like Crisp, who walked around the massive machine for some minutes before he located an entry hatch. When he finally entered the bomber, he called out for survivors, but there weren't any. In fact, there weren't any dead either. The aircraft was completely empty. Crisp was astonished, to say the least, later saying, quote, We now made a thorough search, and our most remarkable find in the fuselage was about a dozen parachutes neatly wrapped and ready for clipping on. This made the whereabouts of the crew even more mysterious. The Sperry bombsite remained in the Perspex nose quite undamaged, with its cover neatly folded beside it. Back on the navigator's desk was the code book giving the colours and letters for the day for identification purposes. Various fur-lined flying jackets lay in the fuselage together with a few bars of chocolate, partly consumed in some cases. End quote. It seems the crew had simply vanished into thin air and the plane had somehow managed to land itself. Eventually, what was believed to be the crew of that bomber would be found alive and accounted for having bailed out after taking flak while bombing oil refineries in Germany. Their account of the events leading to the landing of what would become known as the Phantom Fortress was that the bomb rack had developed problems and after veering away to resolve the issue, Flack had taken out one of the engines. They tried to head for England but feared they wouldn't make it and so headed for Belgium, ultimately making the decision to set the autopilot and bail out. From this it has been extrapolated that the plane gradually lost enough altitude and eventually made a fluke landing all on its own. And it's a plausible explanation in some respects, but there is a couple of notable question marks. For one thing, standard practice at the time would have been to destroy the bomb site and the code books to stop them falling into enemy hands. And then there is one glaringly obvious point. If the plane and crew were a match, and the crew did indeed bail out, why were their parachutes still neatly wrapped in the fuselage? This has never been satisfactorily explained. You've been listening to Mr Benson's Extraordinarium. Created, researched and hosted by me, Dan Benson. If you enjoyed the show, hit the subscribe button and continue to join me as I uncover extraordinary stories from around the globe 
and throughout history. Till next time, peace, love, light. Take care, catch ya.